Well, we're off and running here now with our summer series, and what a privilege it is to have Dr. Mark Bailey as our keynote to launch us with his careful, clear exposition of Scripture. It's a privilege to have him back. I believe he was here the last time about three years ago. He is, he's been teaching at Dallas Theological Seminary for over 25 years. He's been the president of Dallas Seminary, the, only the fifth president in that school's history, getting close to 100 years of, of training uh, men and women for leadership and a, a variety of roles of ministry, of serving. And he's been serving as president there now for about 11 years plus. And uh, so it's a joy to have uh, Mark back. And I know Barbie's over here, right over here. Uh, his wife, Barbie, would you stand? And we'd like to just welcome you. Thank you for being here as well. I've had an opportunity to hear Dr. Bailey now already twice this morning, and this will be my third time, and I've needed it, and he's getting better each hour. And he's decided to tackle probably the toughest subject of all when you think about the hand of God, and that's the hand of God as it relates to suffering. I told him earlier that he's just he's nailed that. All the rest of the summer speakers can just coast. He's dealt with the toughest subject uh, but I've so appreciated, even this morning, hearing the way he illustrates it. He takes the Word of God. It is alive, and he presents it in just that way. Would you help me in welcoming back our friend, Dr. Mark Bailey, to this pulpit? Thanks, Mark. Welcome here. What a privilege it is to be back at uh, Colonial. I uh, count your pastor as a dear friend and uh, colleague in ministry. And uh, you need to know how high I esteem him as a pastor, as a fellow president of an evangelical seminary. And I bring congratulations to you as a church, to the seminary, and to him as not only the uh, pastor but president. Uh, Just a week ago, I was up in Minneapolis at the accreditation meetings, and a significant milestone was achieved for uh, the Shepherd Seminary in uh, being granted affiliate status with the Association of Theological Schools, which is a mark of uh, credibility and integrity and accountability. And so uh, I uh, congratulate all of you, uh, but especially those of you who serve with Shepherd's Seminary and to uh, uh, Mr. President, uh, congratulations. Uh, that's, a, that's a great achievement. It is a privilege uh, to be here this summer as well. I was scheduled to be here last year uh, when the storms came through, and uh, we had to make a call, and uh, it was a good call because uh, none of the planes from Dallas would come here uh, during uh, a time of storm that you had. But uh, as we flew in yesterday, my wife and I, we, uh, I I don't want to say it was hot, (laughs) but... From one corn cob to another, uh, congratulations on setting a record. Uh, if you uh, watched last summer, we uh, went through a, a heat wave in Dallas of uh, how many uh, days over 100 degrees, and we got close to setting a record. I and the Lord had a conversation. I thought if he would uh, allow us to suffer that kind of heat for that long, at least uh, I could have been there during a record. Uh, but uh, it was a, a long, hot summer. And uh, it may be that again this summer, but uh, I'm glad you're here. It's cool in here, and uh, it's refreshing to be back at Colonial. It was my uh, challenge 
when I heard the series title and that I would be speaking, as I thought about uh, seeing God's hand in, one of, one of the biggest questions is the question of seeing God's hand in uh, the context of suffering and the context of evil. Uh, the Barna Research Group asked a thousand people, if you could ask God only one question and you knew he would give you an answer, what would you ask? Hands down, the winner in that poll was this. Why is there evil or why is there suffering? Why is there pain and suffering in this world? Uh, the problem of evil and suffering is undoubtedly the greatest theological challenge we face. The curious as well as the critics of Christianity ask this question, how could a good God coexist with an evil world? The question of where God is in the midst of pain is not simply a philosophical question to be debated in the ivory towers of academia. The questions we will address today are deeply personal to many of us. These are the questions that might keep us awake at night. Uh, they're the questions that tie our emotions in knots, that cause friction even among family members, and it may even attack the very foundations of our trust in God and his word. Uh, I come with this thought and this title and this message, not out of a background in which we have not faced it. Uh, more within my family and within my friends than personally, uh, but I grew up with a uh, special needs older brother. He was born with brain damage at birth. And for 62 years, he lived with the limitations of uh, what no one would call something that would be good. Uh, Barbie's dad was a missionary statesman, unbelievable leader in Argentina, Caracas, Venezuela, as well as here in America. And early in his life, uh, from our perspective, God allowed him to contract Parkinson's, and we watched him go from a, a statesman, a, a virile uh, a statesman, a, a, a man leading to... Uh, his deathbed in 17 years of suffering from Parkinson's and not knowing who was taking care of him in his end of life. Uh, her mom, thinking she had a bit of a gift of time after that, through a strange uh, set of circumstances, uh, fell, uh, broke a hip, was discovered she was full of cancer, and she passed away about a year and a half or so later. Uh, then my brother died, and then my father died a normal death of uh, an elderly man. We've had friends whose uh, children have fallen in the swimming pool and been brain damaged for life. We've had students who have uh, died as the result of another drunken driver cutting them off. I have buried premature fetuses, twins, in a shoebox size when I was pastoring. Uh, I come to you knowing that we live in a world of suffering and a world of hurt. We're not unmindful of those who suffer for the cause of Christ, especially their faith. And if uh, the statistics are right, between 70 and 100 will give their lives for the faith today while we enjoy our time together. Evil is uh, both moral and evil can be thought of as natural. Moral evil are the evils that are committed by sinful people in sinful ways uh, against other sinners, since all of us are sinful could be the abduction of a child. It could be the untimely death of a loved one at the hands of another person. could be the betrayal of a friend or a colleague, a business associate. could be the abandonment of a marriage partner or the unfaithfulness of one. could be the abuse, physical, sexual, 
by one more powerful. Evil can be also defined as natural. The tragedies of nature like tornadoes, hurricanes, floods, hot temperatures. These are the things that just happen in a fallen world. Because evil involves the absence or loss of something good or that which ought to be present. That might be peace. Hebrews have a great term for that, shalom. The loss of peace, the loss of righteousness, the loss of justice, uh, the loss of a sense of well-being. All of that is described as evil, whether it be moral or somewhat natural. And, and so to ask the question, where, where is God in the midst of all of this, may be one of the hardest questions we could ever ask, but I want to suggest that it might be one of the most helpful questions that we could ever answer. And so I want to talk about the, the problem of suffering. And to state it in a nutshell, God exists. We assume that. The Bible teaches that. And for our context, we believe in a, a good and a, and, a, and, a, and a holy God who exists as creator. Because he's God, he is all good. He's a God of all grace, all goodness, holiness, righteousness. If he's God, he's all powerful. We call that in theology omnipotent. Uh, God is all wise. He's omniscient. He knows everything. But here's where the rub comes. If God exists and God is good and God is all powerful and God is all wise, then evil also exists. And this is what drives people crazy. How does all of this exist together? Uh, let me unpack the problem with a few quotations. First of all, Epicurus, the old philosopher, the ancient philosopher, put it this way. Either God wants to abolish evil and cannot, or he can abolish it but does not want to, or he cannot and doesn't want to. Regardless of how you answer that, either that attacks his power, it attacks his character, or it obviously raises questions about who he is. Uh, to put it another way, if he wants to but cannot, then he's not omnipotent, he would be impotent. If he can and doesn't want to, then that would challenge his goodness, then he must be wicked, as some people would think. But if God can, and he wants to abolish evil, then Epicurus raised the great question, then if God can deal with evil, and if he wants to abolish it, then how comes evil in this world? It's not only a question of the philosophers, it's a question of the theologians. Augustine, one of the early church fathers, said, if there is no God, how do you explain why there's so much good? And if there's a God, why is there so much evil? He recognized the difficulty. John Stott, who recently went to be with the Lord, a pastor out of London, theologian and pastor, said, the fact of suffering undoubtedly can constitutes the single greatest challenge to the Christian faith and has been in every generation. Its distribution and degree appear to be entirely random and therefore unfair. Sensitive spirits ask if it can possibly be reconciled with God's justice and love. This is the number one question that has ever been asked about Christianity, and it's the number one reason that people give for not wanting to come to Christ. But it's also the number one reason why people who have claimed faith in Christ and even who have been teachers of his word have walked away from the faith because they have struggled with how a good God and the evil in this world can coexist. How do we see God's hand 
in this. I, I want to come a little back door with you, and I, and I want to suggest that rather than arguing against the, the, the presence of God, the existence of God, the reality of God, that evil actually argues for the reality of a good, powerful, and all-wise God. You ready? It, it, it's, it's July. You can, you know, you're free. You can think, okay? Let's go for it. The problem of suffering. Okay? Now, number one, to have a concept of good and evil assumes a standard of moral law. Now, now let me explain this, and we're going to walk, and I'm going to build a chart with you. To, to uh, have a concept of good and evil, even to say something is good and something is evil, assumes that you have a standard to say that. So to, to, to even argue that this is good or this isn't good, we live in a postmodern world, and maybe some philosophers say we're now in a post-postmodern world, where uh, the issue of truth and authority has come into question and definition. And so some people say, you have your truth, I have my truth, and uh, that's what you think, and that's what I think. A, a fun way to handle that kind of a person is just say, no, I think you're wrong. And you have to admit, if you're consistent, that that's my truth. And therefore, it's true that you're wrong. Now, think about that. It'll, it'll get you about 2 o'clock this afternoon. Okay, you know, if, if, if there's something that's right, then there is something that's wrong. If there's something that's true, then there has to be something that's not true. And, and there has to be a standard for that. If, 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 if con is opposite of pro then is Congress different than progress? No political, you know, commentary was intended. It was intentional. Moral law, there has to be one. If you want to test somebody, say... To those who say there isn't, it's, it's either the product of the culture in which you live, then say, all right, in any culture, if you take a granddaughter uh, and you hold a knife to their throat and you say, is it okay or not okay if I go ahead and take her life? Is there ever a time when that would be okay? You'll understand that we have within us an element of moral law that the Bible speaks of as conscience. But that leads me to number two, because number two is to hold the concept of moral law demands the presence of a moral lawgiver, demands the presence of a moral lawgiver. Robert Morley said, thus, without the existence of God, there is no evil or good in an absolute sense, but everything would be relative. The problem of evil does not negate the existence of God. It actually requires it. Jeremy Davis and Henry Poe, in their book, Designer Universe, Intelligent Design and the Existence of God, argue that the existence of evil in our universe does not disprove the existence of God. I love this one. Any more than termites in a house disprove the existence of a good architect. See, just because you have termites doesn't mean there wasn't a good architect who designed the building. The, the fact that you have evil in our universe doesn't mean you didn't have a, a divine designer of the universe. And so if you're going to have good and evil, there must be a moral law. If there's a moral law, there has to be somebody who gave the moral law. Let's call it for now a moral law giver. We would understand that obviously to be God. 
Because in the beginning, he, when he created man and woman, he said, here is the garden. You can have anything you want. You can eat of anything in this garden except one tree. Wouldn't you know it? That's the one tree they want to go after. With the deceit of Satan and the disobedience of Adam, they make the wrong choice. But don't miss what God had done as a moral lawgiver. He said, this is right and this is wrong. If you do what's right, you live. If you do what's wrong, in the day you eat thereof, you will surely die. Here is the standard. Here is the blessing, the curse. Here's the results for it. A good God, a holy God, a wise God knew exactly what would happen. He had the power to enforce it. This is the moral lawgiver who gave a moral law, and one part is right, the other aspect is wrong. That brings me to a third, and that is to acknowledge the presence of a moral lawgiver implies the possibility of a response to that moral lawgiver. Norman Geisler and Jeff Amanu in their article, Evil, in the New Dictionary of Theology, put it this way, whereas God made the fact of freedom... Humans perform the acts of freedom. God made evil possible. Creatures make it actual. It was true in the angelic world. It was true in the human world. Now, to, let's bring this closer to home. How many of you are parents? Let me see your hands. How many of you knew that if you had children, they would disobey you? <laughs> All of you. Anybody not think they would? Hello? So you had children knowing that they would be disobedient. It's your fault. (laughs) Evil in the universe now is your fault. Did you cause them to sin? Say no. No. Now, fathers, the Bible says don't provoke your children to anger. You could cause that in one sense. But, you know, by and large, you don't say, I want you to sin. I'm going to make you sin. I want you to disrespect me. I want you to disobey. No, you had children. You knew they would, but you didn't cause it. God's not the cause of evil. He is the creator of the possibility. And that leads us to number four, which is incredibly important. To have the possibility of response is predicated on the granting of freedom of choice. Freedom of choice. Paul Little put it this way, love is voluntary. God could have made us like robots, but we would have ceased to be men. God apparently thought it would be worth the risk of creating us as we are because he gave us freedom of choice. I was just up at the accreditation meetings, as I mentioned. It was in Minneapolis. I'd never been to the Great Mall, the big mall of America. Never been there. I mean, that's just like Disneyland in a box. (laughs) Unbelievable. And... uh, they have a, a Lego land set up in there, and I, I took pictures of it on my iPhone to take it back to my kids. They, they have a, a, a Lego sculpture, so to speak, of little Lego things that have been put together for a, a, a Lego man who's three stories tall, 30 feet tall. You got to go up the escalator to get to the top. Now, God could have created Lego men and little Lego girls that come in the pink packages. I have a granddaughter. But Lego people can't love you. Lego people can't respond to you. I remember the moment. I can remember the restaurant. It was at uh, Fadi's 
Mediterranean restaurant on 75 and Knox Avenue in Dallas, Texas, when my oldest grand, you know, grandchild, Fiona, uh, she was our first. The first time she wrapped her arms around my neck as a baby and, and, and hugged me of her own volition. I didn't have to take her arm and put it there. I didn't put the other one there, you know, and held her close. See, she loves me. No, no. When she saw me, she wrapped those arms around. She could have anything she wants. As many as she wants, anytime she wants. We have four grandchildren. She's our only girl. When our uh, youngest grandchild was born uh, to her uncle, my younger son, just uh, 12 weeks ago, she said, I'm, I'm glad it was a boy because I'm, I'm still the only princess. She's eight. She can still have anything she wants. But it doesn't get any better than that. That freedom of choice, and that brings us to a fifth one, and that is to grant freedom of choice is necessary for the creature to respond in both faith and love to the creator and redeemer of their lives. Judy Salisbury, in her book, A Christian Woman's Guide to Reasons for Faith, said it well. God cannot create human beings with freedom of choice and then force them, force them to make right choices. See, that wouldn't work. If that would be the case, they would not be free moral agents who have the responsibility and the capacity to choose to bless or curse him. See, real love, the, the love we have for God and the love we have for each other must involve a choice. Unless human beings can freely choose not to love, they can't freely choose to love. So the possibility of one necessitates the possibility of the other. It's logically impossible to make somebody freely do anything. If they're made to do it, they wouldn't be free to do it. And it would be conditioned response, not initiated love. And with God, a love and obedience that's rooted in faith is what he's always been about. Will you trust me that that's right and that's wrong? Will you believe that I've provided everything necessary to deal with all of your wrong so that you can be declared right in my sight? It's a response of faith. It's a response of love. It's a response of obedience. You see, God's wise enough. He's wise enough uh, to know you and I need pain or suffering for reasons we may not understand because God foresees the future good. See, the Bible says that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the world. I thought the other day, for the first time in my life, I thought, I wonder what Jesus felt when he watched Adam and Eve disobey. See, out of eternity past into time, when the choice was made and it caused the fall of the human race, I wonder what kind of pangs went through the heart of the Lamb of God who knew he would be slain from before the foundation of the world in the counsel of God that would become reality in time. I wonder what he thought. Well, why, why does God allow suffering to come in? Why does he allow people to make choices that bring pain? Number one, God uh, uses suffering and evil to prove our faith to prove our faith. This is not in your notes, it's free. <laughs> God uses suffering to, uh, to prove or approve our faith as a testimony both to the seen and the unseen worlds. 
in Scripture, how Barbie and I function as a couple is a testimony to the angels, according to 1 Corinthians 15. How you as a church function here at Colonial Baptist, according to Ephesians 3, is a testimony to the unseen world that you can do it God's way. Why do the angels need to see it being done God's way? Because that's where the root of the problem started with them. It was a group of them that said, we don't want to do it God's way. It's, it's a testimony of faith. In fact, that, that's where Job started. Remember, the book of Job starts with God, not with Satan. God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? If I was Job, I'd have said, thanks a lot, Lord. I'm now the tennis ball in a match between the two of you. This doesn't feel good. God said, he's a perfect man. He's upright in all of his ways. One who fears God shuns evil. Does he worship me for nothing? Haven't you dealt with him at all, Satan? And he sick Satan on Job. Why? To prove his faith that you don't have to only get the goodness of God in order to worship God. That's a tremendous lesson. And then Satan says, well, hey, you know what? I I, I know if I take away his family, if I take away his farms, if I take away his flocks, I'll bet he'll curse you and, and he'll have to die. And God says, go for it. Let me show you. He won't. And Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't curse God. And then Satan comes back and says, yeah, but skin for skin, all that a man has will he give for his life. You let me touch him physically. I've touched his wealth. Now let me touch his health, and I'll bet you he'll curse you. See, in chapters 1 and 2, the opening part of that book, God put Job on display to the angelic world and to the humans around him that here's a man who will serve me whether he has wealth or whether he has health. So opposite of what you hear from the weirdos on radio and television today, but that's another message. Number two, to reprove our faith. To reprove our faith. God uses suffering to reprove our faith or the lack thereof. It's a way of getting our attention. If the first has the goal of displaying character, this one has the goal of disciplining our character. Hebrews 12, 6 says, Whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Proverbs says that a man who doesn't discipline his son doesn't love his son. In fact, it's a strong word in the Hebrew. He hates his son. Parents who don't discipline their kids don't show enough love, and therefore it's as though they hated their kids. Why? Because whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. That's the pattern for a good father or a good mother. William Lane Craig states, God cares more about our holiness than our happiness. And Paul Powell echoes, God's goal is not primarily to make us comfortable, but to conform us to the image of his son Christ. But see, God also uses suffering to improve our faith. It's a means of refinement and growth toward Christ's likeness. This has the goal, the development of our character. Barbie and I have been privileged to get to know Johnny Erickson Tata and her husband. And they've been on our campus, we've been on, in their ministry, and we've uh, co-written a couple chapters in a book we just released, Why, Oh God, uh, that's just come out from Crossway on suffering and a theology of suffering and disability for the church ministry. And uh, uh, it's, it's worth the, the whole price of the book to read her last paragraph at the end. But she's been in that wheelchair uh, 40, uh, almost 47 years, 44 years or so. We, we, we've watched God develop her character. Some of us have sort of, I, I, she and I are the same age, and we, we, we've sort of grown together. And, uh, and I've watched her from afar starting in 1982 until the present, and I've watched God develop her. And, 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 and the character that he's developed in her has become a worldwide ministry, as many of you know. She now understands, had she never been in that chair, God would never have given her the platform 
of proclaiming him to a world like she's been able to do. Uh, See, to prove she's on display, to reprove at times she has to struggle with her own responses, but to improve. She hasn't stopped growing in her faith. I was sitting at breakfast this morning and drinking a cup of coffee and reviewing my notes for today. And I, and I thought, you know, that's the outline in the book of Job right there. First couple chapters, God put him on display. Then Job gets a little cocky and says, I'd like to take God to court. I'm suffering and I haven't done anything wrong. You go through three rounds with uh, Eliphaz, Zophar, and, you know, and uh, Elihu and, uh, you know, and, and those guys. And, uh, and they're all saying, Job, sure, sure you, you know, you've sinned. Otherwise, you wouldn't suffer. And he goes, guys, I haven't. I haven't sinned. You know, and, and you got Bildad, Zophar, uh, you know, Elihu, uh, another one comes along, or Eliphaz, and a little later Elihu comes along and uh, tries, tries to tell it. And, and all the way through, he's saying, God, I'm suffering. I haven't done anything wrong. It must be your fault. And God has to reprove his faith and take him uh, on a quiz about creation and, you know, and majesty. And, 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 and Job develops motorboat theology because the more questions God asks, he's going, but, 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 but God... And finally, he sees God, and it says, when I saw God, I put my hand over my mouth, and I worshiped. There's the reproof that now becomes the improvement of faith. And at the end of the book, God blesses Job with twice as much as he'd ever had, because he's got eyes off himself and started praying for his friends, Bildad and Zophar and Eliphaz and Elihu, and God blessed his life. Lee Strobel comments, Job's suffering hollowed out a big space in him so that God and joy could fill it. God and joy could fill it. Listen to Romans 5. It's in that great passage, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And he goes on and he says, but not only this, verse 3, but we also exalt in our tribulations, the afflictions, Knowing that tribulations brings patience, or brings about perseverance, and perseverance brings proven character, proven character brings hope, and hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who, who has, has, was given to us. See, there, there are divine reasons why God allows us to go through difficult times, and, and, and it's to prove, it's to reprove, it's to improve our faith. To display our faith to some, to discipline our faith to others, but in all of us to develop our faith. That, that's why God allows it. C.S. Lewis's statement, some of you have seen it before, but God whispers it to us in our pleasures. He speaks to us in our conscience. He shouts to us in our pains. It's his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. Pain and suffering are often the means by which we're motivated to seek God for the first time. Some of you in this room have come to Christ out of suffering, out of pain. That's how he got your attention. Some, it's, it's a question of will you surrender to his will. For some, it's to submit to his authority. And for others, it's to serve him in spite of the circumstances. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Peter. All of that was introduction. Now comes the sermon. A verse to remember. I don't know of another verse that captures it so well. First Peter chapter 5, in verse 10. In the context of suffering for their faith in the first century, the hands of Romans and Jewish zealots, uh, Roman, uh, you know, the empire and the, the Jewish jealousy and zealousy, Peter is writing 
to this group of Christians. And he says this, After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself perfect, confirm, uh, strengthen, and establish you. What a loaded passage. I teach at Dallas Theological Seminary, and I bring you greetings. We count Shepherd Seminary as a sister institution that upholds the inerrancy and hence authority of the Word of God, the position, the exclusivity of the gospel through Jesus Christ, and uh, we count it a privilege. In fact, it was my privilege to, to write a letter to commend uh, Shepherd Seminary to the accrediting association because of that sister relationship. But if you were at Dallas and you said in my course, one of the places that I teach is in the area of uh, hermeneutics and Bible study methods. And so I would uh, break out a class and break out a passage like this with you. Here, here's the grammar diagram sort of of the passage. If you're like me, I, I had a mean, ugly grammar teacher, so I hated grammar growing up in school. You say, that sounds a little mean. No, she really was both of those. And, uh, and as a young, immature kid, I, I didn't like grammar because of that, as part of that. But uh, I, I grew to love it when I got into school and started studying the Bible. But uh, it starts with a temporal clause, after you have suffered for a little while. After you have suffered for a little while. The subject of the sentence is the God. Why the God? Why the definite article? Because he's going to say something definite about him. Could have just said God, but it's the God. He calls him of all grace. He's the God of all grace. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, James says, with whom there is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. All grace is rooted in a gracious God. He is the God of all grace. Now watch what he did. Who at a time in the past called you, past tense, called you to his eternal glory in Christ. That's a future reality. But the calling of that took place in the past. The experience of that will ultimately be fulfilled in the future. And, and, and it's in between that calling and that glory that suffering comes. Or maybe it's out of that suffering that the calling comes. His point is that suffering is here, but that's not the end of the story. The God who is the God of all grace has called you to his eternal glory, but he did it in relationship to Jesus Christ, in Christ. That's a term that's used for our position and our relationship with Christ because by grace we have come into faith and we have a relationship with God through Christ. We are in him and we are related to him. And so that's the subject. What's the verb? Well, it says he will himself do something. Now notice, with will himself is intensive. Some things God does immediately in theology, we call that the, the sovereignty of, of, of mediacy, that God is sovereign enough to work his will through armies of people and enemies of people. Even the wrath of men will praise him. That's immediate sovereignty. But there's also an immediate sovereignty, things that only God can do, only God chooses to do. That's, this is one of those great times when God says, no, no, I, I reserve this prerogative for me. God will himself... Watch the verbs. There wasn't one that was good enough, so he stacks four. He will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. Somewhere in that list, he finds all of us in our need. 
He will perfect. He'll complete the process. He'll confirm that our faith was a reality. He'll strengthen us in, 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 in our weakness uh, uh, until that day. And, and, and he will establish us and allow us to continue to function for him. The you is the object. Who will he do this for? He'll do it for you. First century Christians extended because it's been stitched into Holy Scripture for us as the church of Jesus Christ. This is what God will do. This is the promise. Now, I want to take that apart and give you seven quick truths of encouragement. Number one, Christians are not exempt from suffering. Regardless of what you hear on radio or television, God may not want you wealthy and he may not want you to be healthy. Ultimately, he will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. But God may allow Satan into your life to buffet you. God may allow illness into your life to temper you. God may allow disappointment in your life to have you refocus upon him. But, but Christians are not exempt from suffering. Just read your Bible. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, hello. Daniel, Jesus. Number two, all suffering is temporary in light of eternity. All suffering is temporary in light of eternity. If you can think of time uh, as, a, as a, a speck of dust, even an infinitesimal dust on this microphone right here, and then you think of this whole room as eternity, in perspective, all of history is in that speck of dust in comparison to eternity. And your lifetime is even smaller. And your experience of suffering is even smaller. Keep it in perspective. He said, after you have suffered a little while. See, from, from eternity's perspective, it's a speck of time. Don't let it determine your whole thought process. Don't let it color your whole view of God. It's just a tiny piece of a much bigger picture that God has in mind for us. Don't lose perspective, in other words. Number three, the, the God of all grace gives that grace during temporary times of suffering. God, God is a God of grace. If he gives living grace, he gives dying grace. He gives grace for times of suffering as well. Number four, the ultimate effect of God's gracious call is eternal glory. Don't, don't, don't miss this. He, he has called us to being conformed to the image of Christ. In fact, Romans 8 says we're predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. 1 John 3 says, Beloved, now are we the children of God, and such we are. And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But we know that when he appears, we'll be like him, for we'll see him as he is. God is in the process of making you and I as believers, ultimately, to match the character of his Son. It's a process here. It'll be finalized there with ultimate perfection. When I get to heaven and I look up Paul, it won't be the apostle. It'll be my brother Paul. I'll see, I'll see him in Christ-like perfection for the first time in our lives. The amazing thing is he'll see me in Christ-like perfection for the first time in all of our lives. And my transformation will be much bigger than his. Trust me. Trust me. The ultimate effect of God's gracious call is eternal glory. Number five, the believer's calling is grounded in Christ. It's that relationship of faith in response to the grace of God. I trust in Christ. I become in Christ. And God does all kinds of things. In fact, uh, Lewis Perry Chafer, our founder, said there's at least 32 things that happened to you the moment you came to be a Christian in Christ. That's a great study on its own. Number six, God has guaranteed the ultimate perfection of every believer. 
Now, in case you wondered, the spouse sitting next to you, if they're sitting next to you, God has perfection planned for them. And I know you're glad. But they're glad that it goes the other way, too. My wife will be really glad when perfection comes. We just celebrated 40 years of marriage. We've been dating for 43 years. Yeah. Last Saturday, last Saturday, and uh, it's been 40 wonderful years for me, about 35 for her. (laughs) And I'm being evangelistic with that, I'm sure. But see, God's guaranteed one day I'll be like Christ, finally. (laughs) And she's going to go, finally. (laughs) Number seven, but when you back off of this, it's God's strength that gives sufficiency for temporary times of suffering. His strength is made perfect, Paul said, in our weakness. Now think about this for a moment. If it's God's strength is sufficient for temporary times of suffering, Peter Kreeft is right. I love his statement when he says this, criticizing uh, God for not doing it, that is the pro- solving the problem of evil in the world right now, is like reading a novel and criticizing the author for not resolving the plot. See, none of you would put a book down halfway through and say, I don't get it. It's not going to happen. I don't want to read the rest of this. No, you'd read the end of the book. That's why if you read James and 1 Peter without reading Revelation, you're not going to get it. The irony is at the end of the book of Revelation, the prince rides in on a white horse. He's got a sword that comes out of his mouth that slays the dragon, and uh, he marries the girl, and they live in the castle forever. It's the ultimate love story of the church and his bride. I'm the bridegroom and his, his church, the bride. All other love stories are cheap imitations of the big one. But for criticizing God, for not you know, wiping out all evil today. If God wiped all evil out tonight, we'd all be gone. That wouldn't solve anything. See, that's why the critics are are just so, you know, off-centered. See, the Bible shows us that God's long-suffering and patience in not yet judging the world is actually grace that's extended so that salvation can be offered through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, here's the thought that was most helpful for me. Think about the worst act that you've ever seen, heard about, experienced on planet Earth. What's the worst moment in human history when the most innocent one suffered the most unjust wicked? Happens to be at the cross of Christ. No human was ever perfect like Jesus. No human suffered the indignation, the condemnation, the unjust criticism. He was perfect in character. There were no flaws that they could point to, but they crucified him because they didn't know who he was, didn't understand who he was. But in the worst moment, watch this, in the worst moment of human history, God was at his best in acting in grace. God had planned for all eternity to put his son on the cross through the hands of wicked men, delivered up. Romans 8, 2 says this, God did not spare his only son, but delivered him up for us all. John Stott was right when he said, there is still a question mark against human suffering, but we boldly stamp another mark on top of that, the cross which symbolizes divine suffering. Listen to me for a minute as we close. 
for all the evil that every one of us from the beginning of human history have ever perpetrated or experienced. Think about that. All the human evil that was ever perpetrated or experienced, for all of that evil, Jesus paid the penalty. None of us can totally comprehend such the, the level of such suffering he endured to satisfy the justice of his Holy Father. Though he was innocent, and he's the only one who ever was, he voluntarily took upon himself the punishment we all deserve. Why? Because he loved us and gave himself up for us. It was on the cross that Jesus entered into our suffering, the worst kind of suffering, the result of sin, which is death. Are you broken? He was broken for us. Are, are you despised? Ever feel that way? He, he was despised and rejected of men. Do you cry because you can't take any more? He cried as a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. My God, my God, he cried on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? Have you ever been betrayed? He was sold out. He was sold out by one of his own most familiar friends, one of his disciples. Have you ever been rejected by one who was supposed to love you and you thought would love you for the rest of your life? Jesus experienced that from the Father for us. One day all wrong will be made right. But listen to Peter Kreeft again. On this day, on that day, the mystery of suffering and the deeper and more original mysteries of sin and death will be solved. Not just in theory, but in practice. Not just explained, but removed. God will tie up all the loose ends of the torn tapestry of history. And the story that now seems to be a tortured tangle will appear as a masterpiece of wisdom and beauty. God knows the end from the beginning. He's all wise. God's not out of control. He's demonstrating the incredible self-control of long-suffering and patience, waiting for people to get right with him. God is a good wise, powerful God. He has the end, the beginning, and the middle. Where is God? How do we see his hand in suffering? Pardon my vernacular. He's all over it. From eternity past to eternity future and in all of time, he's working out a plan, and he's offered that to you and to me. Would you pray with me? Father, if there be one who is listening to this message and they haven't yet trusted in your gracious provision, good, powerful, and all-wise provision of your Son to be their Savior, may in this moment they respond to your incredible grace and the movement of your Spirit in their hearts and their lives and say, yes, I trust you, Jesus. I welcome you into my life. I want you to be my Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. Thank you for making it possible for me to have the hope of heaven. And Father, for those of us for whom trust in your Son has been a previous commitment, would you help us to trust every day, knowing that you are working out this plan, stitching a tapestry, tying threads, 
in creating a masterpiece of history, all that will ultimately fulfill your will, all the time granting incredible freedom for people to choose to love you, to obey you, to serve you, rooted in a heart of faith. May we live that way so that we might be pleasing in your sight, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Bailey, for uh, opening up that text and so much more. When you sit at the feet of uh, a gentleman like this who knows the Word, knows the Lord, you're put in, in the proper place, aren't you? You're, you're small, but you're safe and secure. And God becomes great and sovereign. 